If you have a Bible, could you take it please and turn to John chapter 17. John 17, as we continue in our series through the Gospel of John. This chapter is connected to the previous chapters. It's connected in that it's part of this um, teaching of Christ in the upper room. Uh, But this chapter has been referred to particularly as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Or some people have called it Jesus' prayer of, of consecration. Um, none of those titles really capture everything that this prayer is. How could any short title summarize what we're given here, namely the opportunity to hear God incarnate pray? It's, it's awe-inspiring. It's a bit daunting to look into and to try to understand. It, it feels almost too private for us to consider It's like we've stumbled on a conversation that we should not be listening to. And yet here it is. It's given to us by the inspiration of the Spirit for us to meditate on and to think on. As we look at this prayer as a whole, I think we'll see three main parts to it. In the first five verses, Jesus is praying for himself. He's praying specifically for his own glorification. And then in verses 6 to 19, he prays for his disciples. He prays for those specifically Uh, there in the room, or maybe walking with him, or possibly in the garden there. And finally, we find most amazingly, it would seem, that he prays for all of those who would later believe in him, in verses 20 to 26. In many ways, he's praying for us. Our hope is going to be to think on these first two items this week, Jesus' prayer for himself and for his disciples, and then we will think on uh, verses 20 to 26 next week, though I imagine there'll be some some overlap in our study. Uh, The chapter begins, you'll note, with these words, when Jesus had spoken these words, which again ties this prayer directly to the teaching that Jesus has just given. The, The themes of chapters 13 to 16 are the lines along which Jesus is going to pray, such that to understand why Jesus prays the way that he does, we have to continually go back to these chapters that precede it. In fact, not just those chapters, but also John's entire gospel. It's slowly been building to this climax of Jesus' arrest, his trial, his crucifixion in chapters 18 to 19. And so we have to remember who Jesus has been revealed to be and how he has taught those who are around him if we're going to understand why he prays in the way that he does here. All of that serves to remind us that John's gospel is not a biography of Jesus that we sort of read one time and then sat down. No, it is a deeply meditative piece of literature that paints a picture of Christ that we are to continually return to. The more we read and contemplate these 21 chapters, the more clearly we will see Christ. Therefore, on Easter, when this series concludes, our study of John's gospel cannot because this gospel invites us in the very way that it's written to to keep returning to its words over and over again so that we might believe in Jesus and find life in him. So that as we meditate on these chapters, more and more we would understand what does it mean to believe in him and just who is Jesus and what is the life that he's offering us through this gospel. We have to keep coming back if we are going to understand these things. The life that he offers us is founded upon his death, and it's his death that casts a long shadow over this entire prayer, isn't it? 
In fact, I think what seems to make it most significant is the fact that this is the prayer of Jesus the evening before his crucifixion. It's similar to the prayers that he offers in the Garden of Gethsemane that we find in Matthew and Mark and Luke, and yet it's also, it's very different. It may even, he, he may have said these words in that same garden alongside the prayers that we read in those other gospels, or possibly he could still be in the upper room, or maybe he's on the way to the garden, but wherever it was, these words were spoken, they, they flowed from the heart of one who knew what he was going to face in the coming hours, but also a heart that longed for the glory of God and for the good of those around him who he loved all the way to the end. Prayer is is many things. But as I look at this passage, I think about the words of the psalmist and, and I'm reminded that prayer most basically is the pouring out of our hearts to God. What a good definition the psalmist gives us. That What is prayer? It is to pour out our hearts to God. In prayer, we are opening up our souls to God and allowing all that fills our hearts to just spill out to him. I think if we're honest, we would say that most of us live pretty guarded lives. <laughs> we don't like to allow those around us to see our deepest thoughts or feelings. And sometimes that's just wisdom, isn't it? But there are moments with those that we truly love and trust where we bear our souls to others. When we open, as it were, our proverbial chest and just reveal our hearts to people. And prayer to God is a place that we are called to do that, to bear our souls to the one who knows us even better than we know ourselves. So when Jesus bears his soul to the Father, what do we see? When Jesus pours out his heart, what do we hear? I think very simply, we find a heart that's filled with longing for the glory of God. And alongside that, the good of others. Specifically those he loved, those who believed in him. And I think in many ways as we look at this passage, Jesus is calling us to share his heart so that we too, when we pour out our hearts to God, would pray in the same way, that we would pray for the glory of God and the good of others. I said that there's no title that can summarize this chapter, so it's really hard for me to say that I can encapsulate it in one sentence, but we're just going to use that simple one today to guide our thoughts, okay? Pray for the glory of God and the good of others. I think that's what John 17, in many ways, is teaching us. It's teaching us way more than that, but at its basic roots, it's telling us to pray, and when we pray, to pray for the glory of God and the good of others. Now, that's not a prayer that we're going to drum up in our own strength but it's one that has to arise as the Spirit conforms us to the image of Christ, the one who longed for the glory of God and the good of others more than anyone else, and, and the, as the Spirit awakens our hearts to, to God's will and God's ways. I think maybe then Jesus is actually applying all of these calls in the previous chapters, chapters 13 to, to, to 16, where he's telling us to ask the Father for anything in his name. You remember that? He says, keeps telling us, just ask the Father for anything in his name, and he will do it, is in some ways Jesus showing us what that looks like. He's showing us how to align our hearts with the will of the Father and such that when we ask for, for anything in his name, 
that we are asking for his glory and we are asking for the good of others and therefore he will do it. So Jesus here is teaching us to pray for the glory of God and the good of others. Well, that's enough introduction. Let's read John 17, 1 to 19, uh, noting that Jesus prays first for his glorification in verses 1 to 5, and then for his disciples in verses 6 to 19. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you, before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All, are my, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Before we delve into the prayer itself, let's consider a couple things. First, consider the person who is praying and then the posture of his prayer. Who's the person who's praying? Well, obviously the person is Jesus, which I think should rightly give us some pause simply because of the clear statements about the deity of Jesus. Why is he who is God spending time in prayer? A simple answer could be found, I think, in the word relationship. Another key word as we think about what prayer is, relationship. And that word, I think, also emphasizes something that John has brought to the forefront in his gospel continually, namely the, the closeness that Jesus has with the Father, a closeness that he communicates about this relationship with God, and, and that was, in fact, one of the reasons that the Pharisees despised him so strongly. It's what they would use to accuse him of blasphemy in the coming 
hours because they say he blasphemed. Why? Because he made God out to be his father. The, the intimacy of the relationship here is in fact found in a way that Jesus, the way that Jesus addresses God as father. It's the word that we've often heard, Abba, a familiar term that a child would use for their father that, that might find some parallel in words like daddy or, or papa. Whatever questions we might have with regard to the inner workings of the sovereignty of God in this unique prayer of Jesus to the Father, at its core, we hear, we hear the Son speaking to the Father out of a heart of love and a longing to align himself with the Father's plan. Again, relationship. He's speaking to his dad. Sometimes we imagine that prayer is unnecessary because God is all-powerful and in control of everything that happens. That's what I think about when I think about Jesus praying. I think about God's sovereignty and how does this work? But D.A. Carson writes, emphasis on God's sovereignty functions as an incentive to prayer, not a disincentive. Isn't that interesting? Emphasis on God's sovereignty functions as an incentive to prayer, not a disincentive. Here, the one who is sovereign over all is led to prayer as a means of agreeing with and accomplishing the foreordained plan that he and his father had laid out. His prayer assures him that this is the path that he needs to walk down and that the father will be with him as he walks down it. And if Jesus, who was God incarnate, prayed while being more aware of God's sovereignty than any of us ever will be, then the fact that God knows and ordains all things should not keep us from prayer, it should drive us to prayer. The sovereignty of God does not keep us from praying. The fact that God controls all things doesn't keep us from praying. It should cause us to pray more. That's the person of prayer, which we could think about much longer, but consider also briefly the posture of Jesus in prayer as we begin this study. We're told that Jesus lifted his eyes to heaven. Just a simple reminder that bowing our heads and closing our eyes is not the only way to pray. <laughs> Sometimes it's helpful. Sometimes at the dinner table we have to tell our kids, just fold your hands, close your eyes, bow your head because we're going to pray now. <laughs> Otherwise, they're all over the place. But that's not the only way to pray. One particular posture in prayer is not required, and we may find that allowing our physical bodies to lead us into prayer can be helpful. As we pray in different, different ways, we, we may stand, uh, we may be led to, to stand and lift our eyes to heaven. We might lay our faces on the ground or any other number of positions, and these can help us to, to guide our hearts into God's presence. Here, as, as Jesus communes with God, asking to be glorified and asking for the blessing of his disciples, he looks to heaven. It's as if, it's as if he's looking his Father in the face as he prays. While we move to the content of this prayer, Let's note in verses one through five that Jesus prays for his glorification. Jesus prays for his glorification. As he said in chapter 12, so he says here, the hour has come, but he says it to his father. 
the hour of his glorification we know is the hour of his crucifixion. Again, it's clear that the, the death of the Son of God is not an accident, but it's the plan of God the Father and God the Son that would lead to their mutual glorification. The Father is glorified as the one who loved the world by sending his Son to die for his people. The Son is glorified for accomplishing the work he was called to do by laying aside his glory and submitting to the will of the Father all the way to the point of death. As Jesus prays in verse 4, he speaks to the Father as if the crucifixion has already happened. Did you notice that? I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He has accomplished the work, he says. Having gone as far as he has in his earthly ministry, Judas having been sent out, he knows that the rest of this plan is as good as done. He's glorified the Father through his faithful, faithful life, and it is as if he has already glorified the Father through his sacrificial death. It will happen. Beyond obedience to the Father in the accomplishment of their redemptive plan, the further glory of his death is seen in the fact that, that it allows him to give eternal life to all of his true children. In verse 2, we see that Jesus has authority over all flesh, over the, the whole world and every person in it, so that he can give eternal life to those who are eternally chosen by he and his Father. And that eternal life is defined in verse 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. How would you write that verse? If I gave you the prompt, and this is eternal life, what would you put after that? I would say, and this is eternal life, life that never ends. <laughs> That's eternal life. We define eternal life in terms of the length of days, right? And while certainly Jesus' death defeats death, so that we who trust in him will never die, he emphasizes what we might say the quality of life over the quantity of life. Jesus gives us eternal life by restoring us back to a right relationship with the Father because that's what we are originally made for. Eternal life is to know God because that's why he made us. If eternal life is simply living forever, then we're in trouble because to live forever but to be an enemy of God or to not know him is not eternal life. In the end, that's eternal death. Eternal life is to know God and to know Jesus. And of course, Jesus has come to reveal the Father, to, to make him known, chapter 1 says. This then is the longing of our hearts, namely to know God. It's it's, it's what should fill our hearts now. It's what will fill our hearts throughout eternity as we grow ever deeper into our relationship with Christ. And so we pray with A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God, the end of chapter one, he has this beautiful prayer, part of which says, O oh God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. O oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, so that I may know thee indeed. That's our prayer, is to know God, because to know God is eternal life. 
as Jesus prays for his glorification, he seems to not only have the crucifixion in view, but also the, the resurrection and the ascension. In verse five, he prays that God would glorify him as he restores him to this place of honor in the Father's presence. That, that's the glory that Christ had since before the world ever began. And yet Philippians 2 tells us that, that he humbled himself, that he emptied himself by becoming a, a human being and a servant of his people. But now, having accomplished the salvation of his people, he looks to the moment that he's going to be taken back into his Father's presence. When the, when the glory that he had laid aside in some way would be restored to him. I think that request helps us to see what Christ has done for us in leaving the Father's side to come to earth. Why did he come to earth? Well, he came to earth so that he could be rejected by the people that he came to save. The one who has been exalted since eternity past was humbled by taking on humanity and then humiliated as he was lifted up on a cross. And yet, in so doing, he was not ultimately humiliated because we who have come to know him find eternal life in that cross. We see in it the glory of God himself. It's a sacrificial death that has saved us so that one day we too might be in the presence of God giving glory to the Father and the Son and the Spirit as we have been created to do, enjoying eternal life. As Jesus prayed for his glorification, so too we pray that he would be glorified in us, that, that we would grow to know him more and more and that people would see that knowing him and knowing the Father, that is what eternal life truly is. I think this then takes us into the, the mission that he has sent us on to glorify him. And that mission is behind what we see in verses 6 to 19 as Jesus prays for his disciples. Jesus prays for his disciples is our second big idea from, or second point there from verses 6 to 19. And as we read these verses, it becomes clear that Jesus is praying for the disciples. But before we see what, what he prays for them, we see more specifically who he is praying for. So note in verses 6 to, to 10 who he prays for. I, obviously, the disciples. But what defines them as disciples? What defines anyone as a disciple of Jesus? Well, Jesus tells us here. First, we see that a disciple belongs to the Father and the Son. There's this, this sense of ownership that, that seems to stretch back into the foreknowledge of God. A disciple belongs to the Father and the Son. He, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1 says. And in this moment, he, he hands us over to the hands of the Son. And yet even in that, there's this mutual ownership that's going on here. It's a bit confusing, but it's, it's almost like there's a joint account. They, they both own us, <laughs> verse 10 says, because all that belongs to the Father belongs to Jesus, and all that belongs to Jesus belongs to the Father. To belong to the Father and to the Son is to be taken out of the world. It's to no longer be enslaved to the world, the flesh and the devil. Jesus highlights the distinction between those who belong to him and those who are in the world. Verse 6 says that all disciples come out of the world. No one is, is naturally born into the family of God. We need to be adopted out of the world. And this new identity creates a new relationship between us and God. Yes, all people belong to God in the sense that he has created all people. And God loves the whole world in the, in the fact that he has made a way of salvation for all people. But verse 9 is striking, isn't it? 
Look at verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 9 is clear that Jesus is praying not for the world, but he's praying for those who are his. And as we consider what he prays for them, the reason becomes clear because he's praying for things that can only be realities for those who are in Christ. We can pray for the world. I think we should pray for the world. But our prayer is fundamentally that the world would come to see the glory of God and the revelation of the gospel of Jesus. Apart from that, we can't pray in the same way that Jesus tells us here for protection or unity or joy or holiness. So we long for those in the world that they would become disciples who are owned by God. We also pray that they would understand and submit to God's word because a disciple is not simply someone who belongs to the Father and Son, but a disciple rightly responds to God's words. That's how Jesus defines a disciple here. A disciple rightly responds to God's word. Jesus, of course, is the word made flesh. And throughout his ministry, he has called people to believe in him by witnessing his works and by hearing his words. Verses 7 and 8 indicate that what sets a disciple apart from the world is that they recognize that everything Jesus says is from God. Verse 8 talks about receiving Jesus' word, knowing the truth, believing that God sent Jesus, receiving, knowing, believing. These are the right responses to the words of Christ. And as we receive Jesus' teaching as a revelation from God, as we come to know the truth of what he says, and as we, we believe that he truly has been sent by God to live and to die and rise again, we are transferred out of the kingdom of this world and into the kingdom of God's marvelous light. We are no longer of the world. We belong to the Father. And we hear in the words of Jesus divine and perfect truth. So are you in Christ? If you are, then you are owned by him and you are different from the world because you receive and you know and you believe the words of Jesus, all by his grace, of course. And yet for all of this distinction between the disciples and the world, we find that Jesus prays for the disciples in large part, why? Because they are going to stay in the world. I, I was thinking about this phrase and realized this is, must be where it comes from, this phrase that we uh, say, where we say a Christian is called to be in the world, but not of it. I've heard that my whole life. I never knew where it came from. It sounds like it comes from John 17, that we are to be in the world, but we are not of it. That's what Jesus says. We don't belong to the world, but to him. We are not shaped by the truth of the world, but by the truth of Christ. But we still have to live in this world, which is why he prays for the disciples the way that he does in verses 11 to 19. So let's see what he prays. We've seen who he prays for. Notice what he prays. Four requests that we see here, which Bruce Milne's commentary helped me to see, though I think they're probably not hard to spot. The first request is for protection. Jesus prays for protection. Not from illness, not from financial loss, not from traffic, not from some of the things that we sometimes emphasize when we think about protection, but rather protection from the world and protection from the evil one. So the prayer is necessary because Jesus is leaving. We notice that, that difference there. It shows up in, in verse 11. I am no longer in the world, 
but they are in the world and I am coming to you. That emphasizes why Jesus prays for this protection. He is leaving the world and while they are no longer of the world, they are still going to be in the world. And so he has prayed that they would be protected from the world, from its temptations, from its persecutions, from those in the world who would use their power to harm them. Again, we're reminded that we shouldn't be surprised at the opposition of the world to us as followers of Christ. Verse 14 makes it clear that the fact that we have received the word and been set apart from the world, that causes the world to hate us. Remember what Jesus says, if they rejected him, they will reject the people who follow him. That just makes sense. So Jesus prays that we would be protected from the anger, from the violence, from the hatred that often comes from the world's rejection. But the world is not the only enemy of the disciple of Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus prays that we would also be protected from the evil one, from Satan, from the devil who prowls around seeking to devour Christians. While we see in verse 12 that that Judas had been given over to Satan according to the plan of God, Jesus knows that he still threatens to harm all the disciples. He's a real enemy. And the way that we're protected from him and from the world is that we are kept by the name of God. Do you notice that request? Verse 11 again, Holy Father, keep them in your name. That is his request. That's what the protection looks like. How are we kept protected? We're protected by being kept in the name of God. At first thought, I think I'd like something a little bit stronger than a name to protect me. <laughs> But in fact, the name of God represents everything that he is. So if we're kept in his name, we are being entrusted, we are entrusting ourselves to everything that he is. We're resting in his goodness, his love, his, his power, his control, his wisdom, his more, and, and more than that. Proverbs 18.10 says, the name of the Lord is what? It's a strong tower. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. It's like a fortress. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. But to be kept in God's name is also to be held together as his children. Just as a a family is joined together by a common name, so too the follower of Christ, we are one because we are in the, the name of Christ. So Jesus prays, secondly, we would say, for unity. For unity. That's at the end of verse 11 and connected, obviously, to to this prayer for protection. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Once again, Jesus connects our unity to the unity of the Trinity. It's connected to this prayer for protection in that the world and Satan often seek to divide the followers of Christ. We're reminded on this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend that whether he originated the statement or not, it's a good one that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours, if not the most segregated, segregated hours in Christian America. There's a reality to that, I think. And race and ethnicity are not the only things that divide us. We often allow the world and the devil to create schisms and, and divisions among us for the silliest of reasons. And a divided church, whether an individual church or the large church at large, is a weak church. But as we link arms with all those who hold to the the gospel in truth, there is power that we can continue the mission of Jesus. And so that's why he prays for this unity. 
because while he had completed his mission from the Father, he was also sending, he sends us on mission. There's something for us to do. Our unity then is not only a source of, of strength to powerfully proclaim the gospel to the world, but it's a key witness to the fact that Christ has truly changed us. Surely behind this, this prayer for unity is that, that call to love one another as Christ has loved us. And as we love one another, laying down our lives for one another, we are joined together in, in a unity that gives us strength to accomplish the mission of God and a unity that witnesses also to the power of the gospel to do what nothing else in the world can do. Peace is only made through warring parties by the blood of the cross. And so we too need to pray for unity. And like Jesus, we must be willing to lay down our lives to see it become a reality. Well, in the midst of these seemingly sober requests, Jesus again talks about joy. That's his third request. It's for joy. It's there in verse 13. But now I am coming to you. These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He is praying for the fullness of joy that comes as we come to know God more and more as we stand firm against the world and the flesh and the devil and as we find that the love and the unity amongst the members of Christ's church that Jesus has called us to. Even though Christ is leaving, he can ask the Father to give his friends joy. And as the Spirit comes to us, we know that he bears fruit in our lives, the first of which is love, but the second is joy, that the Spirit brings us joy. We might return to our definition of true eternal life and say that joy is found in knowing God, in knowing Christ. We seek joy in a lot of different places, don't we? We invest a lot of energy in finding joy, but do we believe that true life and fullness of joy is found as we grow deeper in relationship with God through Christ? Might we be encouraged to seek joy by seeking to know God? Well, finally, Jesus prays for holiness. We might say sanctification. It's a set-apartness of life that makes it clear that we are not of this world, despite the fact that we are in this world. And it's a sanctification that's rooted in the truth of the words of Christ. The heart of the follower of Jesus is to follow Jesus, to, to hear the truth of his commandments and to follow hard after them. But this holiness that he's calling us to is not a showy holiness like that of the Pharisees. Rather, we see it's, a, it's attached to mission. Look at verses 18 and 19. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Why does Jesus speak about sending us into the world after a call to holiness? Why does he talk about his own consecration in speaking about our sanctification? Because it's when we are set apart for God's use, when we are devoted to him with all that we are, that, we can, that he can work powerfully in and through us to glorify himself and to continue his mission of salvation in the world. This holiness is connected to mission in the same way that in Isaiah 6 that we read at the beginning of the service, the same way that Isaiah was purified by a coal from the altar, and then what does the Lord say? Who shall we send, and who will go for us? 
the call to go out on mission follows the purification that came to Isaiah. It's the spirit of the command that God gives to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. That call was not so that Abraham would be accepted by God for his holiness, but rather that he might show the character of God as he was walking through Canaan. It's the spirit behind the Old Testament laws of purity and of holiness and sanctification, that as God set apart a people for himself, they would reveal to the world what he looked like. And so too, that is the call on us to be holy. Jesus prays that we would be holy, but why? So that the world would know the truth of the gospel, so that our lives would declare the glory of God, so that our lives would invite people to faith. Could it be that a lack of mission fervor or a lack of mission effectiveness in our world and in our churches is because we have little or no concern with holiness. Or, or maybe we have a concern with it, but our sanctification is self-serving. Our sanctification is for our own pride. Yet we are in the world, but not of it. We, we, we are in the world, but not of it. But that doesn't mean that we are to put up walls, that our, that our holiness is to separate us in some way from the world that would keep them from seeing this holiness. Rather, it's, it's to, it is so that our not of the worldness would serve the world. Our, our act of not of being in the world, but being holy and sanctified would show forth the glory of God. One article I read by man David Mathis offered this change potentially to say, we are not of the world, but we are sent into the world. We're not just in the world, we are sent into the world. We are not to be of the world, but we, we live and we are sent to be witnesses through our holiness. Well, we have lots more to think on. And I imagine we will come back to some of these things next Sunday. But for now, I think there is a call here to pray like Jesus. To pray for the glory of God and for the good of others, knowing that our greatest good, that our, our deepest joy, our experience of eternal life is found as Jesus is glorified in us. I want to invite you to take a moment of silence and allow God's word to penetrate your heart and then I will close us in prayer. Father, we pause again to thank you for the, the wonder of your word, the fact that we have this prayer of Christ recorded for us. What a gift. We thank you for Jesus who willingly went to the cross for us. We thank you for Jesus who has shown us how to pray and even prayed for us. And so we do join him in asking, Lord, that you would, that you would fulfill these things that you would protect us by keeping us in your name, that you would give us a deep unity that shows the world that you have come, that you would fill us with joy even, a, a joy at the reality that we know you and have eternal life, and a holiness, God, a holiness that displays who you are and draws people to faith in you. Father, would you use 
my feeble words to lead us into truth, lead us into a deeper understanding of how we can pray along with our Savior. We ask all this in his name. Amen.